Welcome to Copyright Clearance Center's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. It is Friday, September 23rd, 2022. Today, as we do each week, we check in with Publishers Weekly on news from the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albanese, PW Senior Writer, joins me today. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. The American Library Association is marking Banned Books Week and celebrating the freedom to read at a time when a surge in book banning shows no signs of slowing. Yeah, so this year's Ban Books Week kicked off last Sunday. It runs through September 24th. And as usual, this year's uh, celebration features a wealth of online and in-person events, all with the focus on the freedom to read. And, you know, for much of its 40-year history, the ALA's Banned Books Week was was billed as a celebration. But I think in 2022, as you suggest, we might need to find another word for it because it's really not so much a celebration this year as it feels like we're still mired in this epic battle that started about two years ago. Uh, And the battle lines have been laid out this week in two releases that highlight some pretty alarming stats. And the first one I'll point out is from the American Library Association, which this week issued a statement acknowledging that the ALA is tracking some 681 attempts to ban or restrict library resources in schools, universities, and public libraries. And that's through the first eight months of 2022. And that is on pace to shatter the 729 challenges ALA tracked in 2021, which was the most uh, the ALA has tracked in 20 years since the Office of Intellectual Freedom has been keeping those stats. ALA officials say those 681 challenges have targeted some 651 different titles, and that number is actually more than all of 2021. And in a particularly alarming stat, 70% of the challenges so far this year are targeting multiple titles. And why is that alarming? Because in past years, challenges would usually come from individuals or maybe a small group who were challenging a single title. But what we're now seeing is that highly organized challenges are coming forth based on these lists of books that are circulating on social media. As I mentioned, ALA officials reported 729 challenges in 2021. Again, that was the highest number of challenges tracked uh, since the Office of Intellectual Freedom began keeping stats. But it also marked a really sharp spike because in 2019, ALA counted just 377 challenges. But that's a number that's actually been creeping up for years before it finally exploded in 2021. And furthermore, ALA officials said that in 2022, the vast majority of targeted books once again come from the Black or LGBTQ community, continuing a troubling trend that has been growing for years, but that really exploded in 2020. And in a new report published this week, Field Guide on what's happening out there with banned books, ALA officials kind of hit at exactly why this is happening. And it's something we've actually talked about a lot on this show over the years. And that's that the current surge of book bans is being driven by a sort of right-wing political strategy that's being organized and funded at the national level, but executed at the local level. And we're talking about groups like Moms for Liberty and No Left Turn in Education that are providing resources and target lists and talking points and planning documents. Uh, And also think tanks like the Manhattan Institute and the Heritage Foundation that are advancing model legislation and policies that are targeting what they call, you know, quote unquote, divisive concepts or attacking critical race theory in school curricula and libraries. And of course, all of this 
It's supported largely by Republican candidates, which makes this appear partisan, uh, who are, of course, stoking this sort of culture war rhetoric ahead of the upcoming November elections. And, you know, with that message getting signal boosted in right wing media outlets and on social media, it's become a trend of concern and something that's even more explicitly called out in a second report that was released this week by PEN America. And that report from PEN America tallies up book bans in schools as well as state legislation aimed at school libraries. Yeah. In a report issued this week, PEN America counted more than 2,500 book bans issued in some 140 school districts in 32 states during the 2021-22 school year. And that's just a staggering number from PEN America which has a significant data collection operation. Now, you may be thinking that 2,500 number is a lot higher than the 681 challenges being tracked by ALA. But once again, you know, Penn is a different organization. They're tracking different things, even though there's some significant crossover. You know, They're counting raw numbers from schools all over the U.S., while ALA is tracking challenges in libraries. So slightly different data collection operations, but the data, I assure you, does align and it all delivers the same message, that book bans are on the rise and are being pushed by a highly organized political movement. Now, like the ALA, Penn officials said that the report shows book bans are growing at an increasingly rapid pace, which we would have hoped at this point maybe they're slowing down. No such luck. And Penn America also confirmed that the vast majority of the bans they counted also feature protagonists of color or issues of race or LGBTQ characters. And what's most fascinating in this report to me, too, is that Penn really does detail what it calls a growing constellation of groups that are coordinating these book bans. In fact, Penn America identifies at least 50 groups that are advocating for bans at the national, state, or local level, and hundreds of sort of local parent and community groups or chapters that are playing a direct role in, and I'll quote the report here, at least half of the bans that have been enacted across the country during the last school year. In a statement, Suzanne Nossel, who's, the, of course, the CEO of PEN America, did not mince words, calling out what she called a coordinated campaign to, quote, banish books being waged by a sophisticated, ideological, and well-resourced advocacy organizations. Uh, it's a movement that is turning our public schools into political battlegrounds, she noted. It's driving wedges in communities. It's forcing teachers and librarians from their jobs. And it's casting a chill over the spirit of open inquiry and intellectual freedom that underpins a flourishing democracy. So a very strong statement there from Suzanne Nossel at Penn and very much on point, I must say, and completely in line with what I'm hearing from my own reporting. Among the books and authors receiving bans, many deal, as you said, with race and the LGBTQ plus community. Can you give us some examples? Yeah, and the Penn Report has some interesting stats. For example, um, 674 of the more than 2,500 uh, band titles in its data involved LGBTQ themes or characters. That's about 41%. And 659 band titles addressed issues of race or racism or had characters uh, of color. That's about 40%. And Penn found that the most frequently banned books were topping the list. It was, it was Gender Queer, a memoir by Maya Kababi, which, of course, was the, the subject of recent litigation of Virginia that we've spoken about on this program. Uh, that was followed by All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson. Uh, Johnson, of course, is the ALA's Band Books Week Honorary Chair and Out of Darkness by Ashley Hope Perez. Now, we won't see the ALA's 2022 top 10 books list until next spring, I think next April. But in April of this past year, 
Uh, the ALA featured some of the very same titles that Penn found. Uh, I think Lawn Boy by Jonathan Everson was the only one that sort of crept in there that wasn't on the Penn list, or at least not on the tops of the Penn list. And, you know, I think they also had, the ALA also had books like uh, The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas and The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indie by Sherman Alexie, which has been on the list for years, and The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, which, of course, featured in a political ad for Virginia uh, Governor Glenn Youngkin uh, last year. And I think what's really important to note as well is something that both Penn and ALA have brought up. And that's, again, these are all very much politically driven. I mean, just a few years ago, the list was not only much smaller, there were fewer challenges, but it was perennially topped by Dave Pilkey because his brand of potty humor uh, was you know, sort of a bridge too far for many parents. Now, not me, I might add. Dave Pilkey is a Nobel laureate in my household. And of course, you know, his brand of like, you know, butt jokes and fart jokes have always been the coin of the realm in schoolyards across America. You reported this week on a poll that show book banning is very unpopular among Americans across party lines. So if it's so unpopular, how come this movement to ban books is having such success? Well, that is an excellent question, and it is something that we truly need to confront because it's an indicator, I believe personally, about you know the peril that our democracy at large is in. But you know, I'll speak a little more on that in a second. So I want to talk about the poll you cite first because it was done by the Every Library Institute, which is the research arm of Every Library, which is an excellent and you know very well done political action committee that focuses uh, that advocates for libraries. Uh, it's run by John Crascott, Illinois. They do great work. Now you can read about this poll on the PW site. It's a national poll. Uh, it was conducted for Every Library by non, a nonpartisan research firm, Embold Research, and it surveyed more than 1,100 registered voters from August 31st to September 3rd. And among its key findings. Some 92% of respondents said that they're aware of this current wave of book banning and that 75% said that they would actually factor in their vote this year. And among its other top line findings, some 91% of those who were polled appeared rather disinclined to ban books. In fact, fully half of all respondents, 50%, said there's absolutely no time when a book should be banned, while another 41% said there are only rare times when it's appropriate. And that includes, I might point out, 31% of Republican voters polled said there was absolutely no time when book banning is appropriate. So I think it's fair to say that most Americans, according to the polls that we've seen, do not like the idea of banning books. Indeed, nothing really is more un-American. And most Americans rightly see book banning as a tool of authoritarianism. Which kind of brings me back to my statement above, you know, about, you know, <laughs> the state of our democracy, because what we've obviously seen in the Trump years is this sort of slide toward authoritarianism, a systematic underpinning of some of our key institutions. Right. You know, you can't trust the FBI. You can't trust the courts. You can't trust elections. And I have to say, I literally laughed out loud this week when I heard Trump himself in, on the news describe the National Archives is being run by radical leftists. <laughs> and you know, the fact is, schools and libraries are now on that list of institutions that must be undermined too, because schools and libraries are invested in learning and the truth and facts and all the kinds of things that frustrate would-be authoritarians. Now, as for specifically why this movement to ban books has been so effective, well, I think it's for many reasons. Money, politics, uh, the rise of misinformation, it's all part of the infection 
that is really giving American democracy a sort of fever at the moment. But more specifically, these book banners are simply very well organized politically and very well funded. Just this week, I saw a release in my inbox from Moms for Liberty. Of course, Moms for Liberty, I mentioned above, one of the key actors in the book banning movement, which is, you know, they're circulating a pledge now during Banned Books Week that is asking for uh, people to present to candidates a pledge that would bind them to putting what they call parental rights first and foremost. And I have to say, this is a message that politically is resonating with a lot of people. They don't call it book banning. They call it parental rights and education. But make no mistake, it is a fig leaf for something much darker. As one observer called it, this is the, quote, weaponization of parental rights. Now, our listeners might remember earlier this year, there was a New York Times editorial by Stanley Kurtz. And I point that editorial out. It was in February of, of this year because he suggested that librarians need to stop being so woke. And that's the message, right? This is the message that is being pushed on the right. Woke teachers, woke librarians. And of course, it's totally false. But, you know, the book banners, you have to admit, have a message that is resonating, especially with donors, if not so much with voters, but definitely with donors. And I'm sorry to say, those of us defending the freedom to read have been too slow in effectively countering that message with an effective message of our own. So any thoughts on what those who believe in the freedom to read should do to fight back? Sure. So, you know, speaking personally, you know, I think freedom to read advocates have to recognize what is really happening here and react accordingly. And in my personal belief, what I believe is happening is less about the freedom to read, though obviously this is a frontal attack on the freedom to read as we've traditionally understood it. But more specifically, more to the point, this is an attack on democracy. And it's an attack on public education and public libraries, which are, of course, pillars of our democracy. So, you know, let me be crystal clear here. What I see going on here, what many observers have told me in my reporting, is that these book bans are part of a political movement that wants to drive a stake through public education. And we can't keep responding with outrage statements and just platitudes about the importance of the freedom to read, though as much as we all believe them, and they are very much important statements to make, we have to organize and we have to stand up. Those of us who believe in the freedom to read have to stand up and fight this at the local level, and we have to fight it in a way that resonates because this is a political movement that requires a political response and at the local level. Now, national campaigns are fine and banned book weeks is terrific in raising awareness, but all of this has to be geared toward local action. I really believe that's the key. And I just want to close out this week by offering a note of thanks to all the teachers and administrators and librarians and teachers who are on the front lines of this battle who are more and more every day, I'm seeing reports of them being harassed in their communities or being forced out of the profession or choosing to leave their jobs under pressure. And, you know, I offer my thanks knowing that that's not nearly enough. You know, we all need to have the backs of these dedicated public servants. And, you know, this year's Banned Books Week, I think, is a good reminder that we have to do more, that we have not done enough so far because the numbers are still going up and the threat is still there. And we must do better. So those of us who value the freedom to read during this Banned Books Week, I would say, please, let's be smarter and let's be more strategic about how we respond to what I think is really a critical challenge. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer, thanks for joining me on the program. My pleasure, as always. 
Coming up on the next podcast from CCC, in growing numbers, people take questions about healthcare, politics, or finding the best restaurants, not to Google, but to TikTok, the short-form video platform. This month, an investigation by NewsGuard, which rates the credibility of news and information websites, revealed that such TikTok searches consistently feed false and misleading claims to users, most of whom are teens and young adults. Stephen Brill, NewsGuard co-founder, shares his concerns. I never thought a year ago, before we started looking heavily at TikTok, that we'd be comparing any entity to Google and saying Google does a relatively good job because they're pretty awful. But TikTok has really put them to shame when it comes to disinformation and misinformation. Beware the new Google and more coming on the next CCC podcast. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. You can subscribe to the program wherever you go for podcasts. And please do follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening to this Velocity of Content podcast from CCC. Mm-hmm.